Philippians chapter 3, verses 1, 2, and 3. Philippians 3, verses 1, 2, and 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. The book of Philippians has four chapters, and much like the book of Ephesians, which has six, we find there's somewhat of a major division about the halfway point. In Ephesians, of course, it's the beginning of chapter four. Here it's the beginning of chapter three. Paul was very close to this church. He was with this church in the very beginning. This church is very close to Paul. Uh, they had ministered to Paul when other churches failed to recognize the need to do so. So they had a very wonderful, out-of-the-ordinary relationship. But he starts his chapter saying, finally, that word's used twice in the last two chapters. Uh, the word finally here doesn't mean what I thought it did as a child. You know, when I was sitting in the pew as a child, a young child, and the preacher said, finally, I got kind of happy. I thought things were about to wrap up. But I soon found out his definition of finally and my definition of finally was not the same. And so it's not here. It actually means, and now for the rest. Or it means, you know, furthermore. Now the second time it's used is in chapter 4, verse 8, when he says, finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And I say unto you to always rejoice in the Lord. Now that finally means it's about to wrap up. So when you hear me preach, if I say finally, you just have to hang with me to find out which one I'm talking about, okay? So he says finally, he's not about to wrap it up. He's gonna write as much in the last two chapters he wrote in the first two. But he's saying, and furthermore, it's kinda of like Paul Harvey, for those who remember Paul, on the radio. He would give a story, then he'd say, now, the rest of the story. So that's what Paul is doing here. Now the rest of the story. Finally, my brethren, the word brethren is used frequently in the New Testament. It's one of the Apostle Paul's favorite words. It's used in a number of uh, places. Like Romans 10, 1, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is they might be saved. For I bear them record they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. And they being ignorant of God's righteousness to go about trying to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteous sake to everyone that believeth. Now Paul wasn't praying here for Israel's deliverance eternally, but he's saying they've got a problem with ignorance. And because of that, they're improperly worshiping God. Their doctrine is way off base. He wanted them to be saved to the truth and what the truth does for you. Like the Lord said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. But there he just says, brethren. Here he says, my brethren. And this gets back to what I said earlier. I believe Paul had a very intimate relationship with this church, maybe a little bit more than he did the other church. And he loved the Lord's people, loved all the Lord's churches. He wrote nine letters to seven churches, and his heart was with all of them. But he was with the Philippian church from the very beginning, as you go to Acts chapter 16. And you read there where he had planned to go to Asia, but the Lord forbid him. He planned to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit forbade him not. So then he just waited there, and the Lord showed him he should go to Philippi, a chief city in the area of Macedonia. And this is where he met 
by the seaside after several days, a woman named of Lydia, a seller of purple, which worshiped God. And from that beginning by the seaside, this church was organized. This church was constituted. This church had a wonderful beginning. And they were always looking out the needs of Paul, not only when he was in their presence, but when he was away from them. They sent in his necessities. He tells us this in the last chapter of Philippians 4. They sent in his necessities time and time again when others simply forgot him. So he says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Now, whatever you may have going on in your life today, you may have some other ordinary problems. You may have some grief. You may have some sorrow. You may have some difficulties of one kind or another. You need to lay them aside from time to time and simply rejoice in the Lord. There's never a time that you cannot rejoice in the Lord. When you think about the Lord, you will not be disappointed. When you think about the Lord's person, about the Lord's work, the Lord's love, His compassion, everything about the Lord, you're never going to be disappointed. There's no failure in the Lord. You can always rejoice in the Lord. I don't care what you're facing. If you're on top of the mountain and you're in the valley of despair, I don't care what your experience currently is. You can always rejoice in the Lord. There's no defeat in the Lord, only victory. So when you're thinking about the Lord, it ought to lift your spirits. When you think about the Lord and His love for you and what He did for you and what He's doing for you and what He's promised to do for you, it'll take your mind away from what you're you know, dealing with and you can rejoice in the Lord. He didn't say rejoice in tribulation. He said rejoice in the Lord. He says, now the things that I write unto you, the same things, to me it's not grievous, but for you it is safe, it's needful. This reminds me of Peter's writings in 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter wrote two uh, letters. And in this second letter, he says, This second epistle I write unto you that might stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that you may be mindful of the things that was written by the prophets and also of all the commandments that were spoken unto you by the apostles of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He says, You'd be mindful of these things. And I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. You can't remember something that you're not acquainted with. You've had to be exposed to it. You had to be taught it. You had to learn it. You, it's something that uh, you understand, and it's important, according to Peter, that your minds be stirred up by way of remembrance. That's what Paul is saying here. To write the same things to you, to me, it's not grievous. He says, but for you it is safe. There are some things that need to be repeated over and over and over and over again. They should always come across as fresh. It should always come across uh, as something that lifts your heart and lifts your spirits once again. You may have heard them many, many times. To me, it's like looking at a, a sunrise or a sunset or the moon in the sky. Uh, I've seen it hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times, thousands, I suppose, in my lifetime. But yet, when you see another beautiful sunrise, it's just like you're seeing it for the first time. Or sunsets, like you're seeing it for the first time. And some wonderful truth that's helped you in times past, you hear it again. You don't say, oh, well, I've heard that before. <laughs> I've heard that before, you know. Uh, if you say that, then, then you've got some problems. But it, it's just like you heard it for the first time. Because the scripture tells us that God maketh all things new. When it comes from the hand of God, he makes it so refreshing. It's like a rising sun every single morning. The dew on the grass, the beauty of God's creation, it never, never gets old. So it says for me to write the same things unto you is needful. He says, it's for you, it is safe. 
He then gives us three bewares. He says, beware, beware, and beware. All right, these were Judaizers he's talking about here. Judaizers were Jews who were preaching or teaching things contrary to the teachings of the Apostle Paul. And they were always around, always opposing him. So he starts off with beware number one, beware of dogs. That might seem like a very unusual way to express yourself, but not when you study the subject of dogs in the Bible. Not a lot said about them. There's enough said about them for us to understand what this is talking about. The Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew 7 and verse 6, to cast not your uh, cast not that which is holy unto the dogs. Now, God gave a list of animals in the Old Testament which fell in one or two categories. They were the clean animals or unclean animals, and the dog is in the unclean category. Cast not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast your pearls before swine. He says, for they will rend them under their feet and turn around and trample you. There are people in this world that don't that care less about talking about the Lord. There's people in this world who don't want to talk about the Lord. Get upset if you try to talk to them about the Lord. Don't do it. <laughs> people say, we're going to go on a door-to-door campaign. The Lord says that's not the way to do it. The Lord said in 1 Peter 3.15, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready on every occasion to give an answer to those who ask you for a reason of the hope that lies within you. Somebody just may ask you, if you're living like you really ought to live, from time to time somebody should ask you a reason of the hope that lies within you. And you need to be ready to give them an answer. To give them a biblical answer. Give them a sensible answer. Give them an intelligent answer. And you can't do that if you're not ready, you see. So don't cast that which is holy into the dogs. In 2 Peter chapter 2, the end of that chapter And he starts that chapter off by talking about false apostles, false prophets, and false teachers. He said, they will come unto you teaching damnable heresies. There was a preacher one time, got a knock on the door. I know the preacher personally. He went to the door, and there were those at the door there, and they had their pamphlets, one thing and another. And he says, I've been expecting you. And they said, what do you mean? We didn't make an appointment. He said, no, but Peter told me you'd be coming by. Peter told me false prophets and false apostles and prophets and, and deceitful workers would be coming back. So I've been looking for you. So said, so come on in. <laughs> they didn't stay long. <laughs> they didn't stay long. And in that chapter, he says, it's happened to them according to the Proverbs that dogs return back to their vomit again and the hogs are wallowing in the mire. We find that Gentiles were referred to by the Orthodox Jew as dogs. If you go to Matthew chapter 15, you'll find where there's a woman in Canaan that came to the Lord Jesus Christ, about verses 25, 6, and 7 in there. And you find she came to the Lord Jesus Christ, and she addressed him on Jewish terms. Now, she's a Gentile woman, but she addressed him on Jewish terms, although Jesus is in Gentile territory here. And she said, Have mercy upon me, thou son of David. That's the, that's the way the Jews, uh, that was a messianic term for the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord didn't say a word. And then she spoke again. And she says, help me, Lord. She did away with the title. She just got right down to what she was. She was a sinner in need. She said, help me, Lord. That's one of the most powerful prayers in all the Bible, right? A three-word prayer, help me, Lord. And the Lord Jesus Christ said, it's not meat to give you know, the meat of the children, 
on the dogs. Bread and the children uh, give it unto dogs. He's in a real light manner, real light way, he's addressing her the way the Orthodox Jew would address her to get her reaction, how, how she would handle this. Now the word for dog there literally means like a puppy dog. But generally speaking, dogs in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ were not poodles and all the kind of domestic type dogs we have now and all the kind of dogs people walk and they own leashes and all. They didn't have them on leashes back then. Or leashes <laughs> back then. They just ran wild and they could be somewhat dangerous. They ran in packs. But there were occasions when one might be tamed and as a little puppy race it up there. And what would the puppies do? They'd, they'd sit there at the table and eat the crumbs that fell from the table. Now, we had a little dog one time, and we didn't feed him food from the table, and we told my daddy when he came not to do that, but I'd always catch him doing it. He just couldn't stand it. When that little dog looked up at him, sitting right there, looked up at him, and when I won't look, and he'd give him some food. <laughs> but the little dogs hung around the table, and they liked to eat the crumbs that fell from the master's table. And she replied by saying, Truth, Lord, it says, the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And the Lord then commended her for her faith. Now in the book of Revelation 22, 14 and 15, the apostle says, Blessed are those that do his commandments. They may have right to the tree of life entering into the city. For without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and those that loveth and telleth a lie. Do you notice that last part there? Now, i use that verse to show you that on the outside are those represented by the dogs. Those who love a lie and love telling a lie. There are people that love to lie. <laughs> they just love it. They like misleading God's people and misdirecting God's people and deceiving God's people. They love a lie and speaking of a lie. And that's the category that the dogs are in. So the apostle here is, uses this term one of three terms to talk about those Judaizers that was teaching things that was not according to the gospel of the Apostle Paul and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, beware of them. Then beware of evil workers. Evil workers were those who were taking the word of God and twisting the word of God and resting the word of God. In 2 Peter chapter 3, you'll find where the Apostle Peter warns those he's writing to over here about people that do such those things. And the word rest, that's W-R-E-S-T, means to twist the Word of God, when properly understood and properly divided, will harmonize itself from, from Genesis to Revelation. There are no contradictions in God's Word. There's no error in God's Word. But it has to be read and studied unlike any other book you ever put your hands on. God rewards a diligent seeker. But these people deliberately took God's Word out of context. You know, there's an old saying, if you take a text out of context, all you got is a pretext. So you never take a text out of context. If you do, you're not going to get the right interpretation of it. They rest the scriptures. They twist the scriptures purposely to deceive God's people. These evil workers were people who was always presenting to God's people a mixture of works and grace. There's a place for works. The Lord Jesus Christ told his disciples, let your light so shine before men. They might see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. There's a place for works, a place for good works. We should be careful to maintain good works. We should be zealous of good works. But when it comes to our eternal deliverance from sin, being delivered from hell to heaven, my friend, it's not a mixture of grace and works. You go to Romans 11, 5 and 6, and the Apostle Paul makes this very clear. He said, even so now, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. 
If it's of grace, it's not of works, otherwise grace is no more grace. If it's of works, it's not of grace, otherwise works is no more works. You can't mix it to be like trying to put oil and water together. It just doesn't work, right? Just doesn't work. That's what these evil workers were. Um, these evil workers, these deceitful workers uh, that were taking God's word and trying to teach things that was not in harmony with the teaching and preaching of the apostles. They were like these dogs. You know, dogs always go around yapping, 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 nipping at your heels when the owner says he won't bite and you can feel his teeth in your ankles. I don't understand that. I don't understand how they tell me dog, that dog won't bite and he's biting me while he's telling me that. And they snarl and they bark and they always, you know, walk down the road and, and there's a dog, man, he just comes charging out thanking the good Lord he's behind a fence. We've got a strong chain on him. You just say, if that chain breaks, I'm done for. That's why he called those Judaizers dogs. Beware the dogs. Where are the evil workers? It's like Hymenaeus and over there in uh, 2 Peter, excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 2, when he speaks about Philetus and Hymenaeus. He says, their word doth eat like a canker, and they were teaching and preaching that the resurrection was past already. And that was not true. They at least admitted there's a resurrection. They said it's in the past. There's no resurrection in the future. Well, past resurrection is not going to do me any good. I'm looking for a future resurrection, you see. He says, their word doth eat like a canker, which means gangrene. And you know the seriousness of gangrene. You can lose a hand, an arm, a foot, a leg, or whatever due to gangrene. That's what their words Paul likened those words to. Then he said, beware of the concision. Not circumcision, concision. Now they're connected, they're related, but the word concision uh, means mutilation. Now the Bible makes it very clear. You go back to the Old Testament, especially the book of Leviticus, and God instructed Israel that they were not to make cuttings into their flesh or their bodies and things. Now circumcision was just exactly that. Circumcision is the cutting of the flesh. But that was ordained of God. Go back to Genesis chapter 17 when God is dealing with Abraham. He tells Abraham, from this time forth you are to circumcise all the males at eight days of old because that's going to be a token of this everlasting covenant that I'm going to make with you. That separated the nation of Israel from all the other nations. The other nations were not under the law of circumcision. But the Jewish people were. And it was a big deal to the, to the Jewish people. Again, it was a token of God's everlasting covenant with Abraham in that day. And so Abraham was circumcised when he was 99 years old. And he circumcised his first son, Ishmael, by the bondwoman when he was 13 years old. Then he circumcised Isaac when he was born at eight days of age, keeping in what God commanded him to do. And so all the Jewish males at eight days old, they were circumcised. Now, you'll find over in the book of Joshua, after Israel was 40 years in the wilderness and all the males above 20 years old and all died, that all those that were born in, during that period of time come along and they were not circumcised. And so Joshua gave commandment under, under the authority of God to circumcise all of them and roll away the reproach of Egypt. Circumcision was a big deal to the Jewish people. And they put far too much emphasis on it in the New Testament day because in the New Testament day, after the Lord Jesus Christ satisfied God's law to a jot and to a tittle, circumcision was no more in force. No more in force. And he's going to tell us in this next verse what true circumcision is. Now, circumcision and uncircumcision are two terms used also to describe the Jews and Gentiles. 
The Jews are described in the Word of God as the circumcision. The Gentiles are described as the uncircumcision. Go to Galatians 2, 7, 8, and 9. And you'll find there where the Apostle Paul said that God made Peter an apostle to the circumcision Jew. And he made me an apostle to the uncircumcised, the Gentile. And then there was Peter, James, and John, who he perceived to be pillars in the church. And after they understood uh, more about Paul and that Paul was truly converted, they gave him the right hand of fellowship, and he should go to the heathen, uncircumcised. And they would go to the Jew, the circumcised. So that's the difference between the circumcision and uncircumcision. But in the book of Galatians chapter 5, which Paul wrote this letter to combat those who were trying to bring the law back into effect, which meant they were not recognizing the Lord Jesus Christ as a promised Messiah, not recognizing Him as the Son of God and what He accomplished on Calvary, we come to Galatians 5 and 1. And Paul says, Stand fast therefore in the liberty where Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. He said, For he that is circumcised is a debtor to do the whole law. If you're going to use circumcision, then you got to be, you're in debt to do the entire law. Now they won't want to do that. But they were wanting to impose circumcision upon the New Testament Christian disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, those who are circumcised are debtors to do the whole law. And those who practice such things, he says, Christ has made them not effect unto them. In other words, they're not recognizing that Jesus Christ was the satisfaction of God's divine law. They're not recognizing what he accomplished on the cross. As far as they was concerned, everything Christ was and what he did was not. And didn't mean his work was that. That means in their mind and everything it was, you see. So you come to the last chapter in the book of Galatians. Uh, beginning in verse 12, chapter 6, he says, They make a, a uh, an open show of themselves in an outward way, in a physical way, and they would compel you to be circumcised. See, they were not just satisfied with themselves, they were compelling them to be circumcised. But Paul goes on to say, For circumcision or uncircumcision profits nothing. Whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised, when it comes to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not a factor. He says, but in Christ Jesus, what is a factor is that we are new creatures in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. See, you're a creature in Christ. God is the creator. Not only do we believe that God is the creator of all mankind in this universe in which we live here, we, we don't believe in natural evolution and we don't believe in spiritual evolution. But yet the doctrines of the denominational world, that's exactly what that teach, that you can, be, you can evolve into a child of grace, a child of God. We don't believe in natural evolution nor spiritual evolution. We believe in a creator God who simply spoke the world into existence. This creator God said, let there be and there was. <laughs> Genesis 1, 1. And you know there's not a great de deal of information. On, and Genesis 1, 1 gives us all the information we need on creation is what I'm about to tell you here. And by contrast, there's many other subjects in the Bible that give you far more information like the building of the tabernacle. It starts in Exodus chapter 25, goes through Exodus chapter 40. One chapter here in Genesis chapter 1. But you know what it tells me? It tells me, just believe I'm your creator. I'm telling you where you come from. I'm telling you I spoke the world in existence. I'm telling you I created heaven and the earth. If I told you that, that's all you need to know. That's all you need to know. Plain and simple. <laughs> that's all you need to know. 
when you're dead in trespass and sin, but being an object of God's grace and his love, and God reaches down from heaven, my friends, by the power of his grace and the power of his life-giving voice and speaks to your heart and speaks to your soul and borns you the spirit of God, you have been created in Christ Jesus. We believe in a creator God. We're the creatures, he's the creator, whether it be in the natural realm or in the spiritual realm. So beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the concision, those who make an open show in the flesh of you and compel you to be circumcised. He said, for we are the circumcision. Now notice what he says. For we are the circumcision which worship God in spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. We are the circumcision. What are you saying, Paul? Let's read the last two verses, Romans chapter 2. He says, for he's not a Jew which is one outwardly, and circumcision is that of the flesh, but he's a Jew which is one inwardly, where circumcision is of the spirit and not of the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Circumcision is a picture of what God does for your heart. When you're circumcised, uh, there's a cutting that takes place in a circular motion. And when God speaks to your heart, he prints his laws in your mind and writes them in your heart. He changes your heart from a state of death and sin to a state of life in Christ, from a heart of stone to a life of flesh. So every heir of promise, Jew or Gentile, doesn't make any difference. When they're born in the Spirit of God, they have experienced, in a sense, spiritual circumcision in the heart. And that leads to praise to God and not praise to men. I hope you all got that, got that this morning. So we're the circumcision which worship God in spirit. The subject of worship is introduced to us here. And we met here this morning to do that very thing, did we not? The more I listen to people talk, who don't even know I'm a preacher, I just listen to them talk. When they get on some type of biblical subject, I just stand amazed and what little and improper understanding they have about worship and many other Bible subjects. Worship is a serious matter. Nothing to be taken lightly. When we come to the house of God, we don't come to entertain, we don't come to be entertained. We come here to worship. Let's see if we can set forth a few guidelines about this. Before the law of Moses was ever given, which established the mosaical law, the ceremonial law of worship, men worshiped God. I look in the 22nd chapter of the book of Genesis, and I find where God tells Abraham, take thy son, thine only son Isaac, take him to a mountain that I will show thee, and you offer him there on top of that mountain. The Bible says that Abraham told three men that was with him and his son Isaac, he says, you tarry here while I and the lad go yonder and worship. When you read that, you might think, well, that's kind of an interesting statement to make right here. You're getting ready to take your son, your only son Isaac, a son of promise, a miraculous son that could never have been born into your family had not God miraculously intervened and made Sarah's womb that was dead and made it alive and enabled you as a man who was dead according to the flesh to be able to father a son. And now he's going to tell you to take him up that mountain and slay him on that mountain. Abraham tells those three, you tarry here while I and the lad go yonder and worship God and we will return to you. Now you mentioned a while ago when I read Romans 12 too, be not conformed to this world but be you transformed what is that good and perfect acceptable will of God. 
I think Abraham understood God's will was good. Abraham understood God's will was perfect. And Abraham understood God's will was acceptable. But I'm sure Abraham sent some questions in his mind. You've already promised me, Lord, that through me and my seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And the seed's not Ishmael, the seed is Isaac. And now you're telling me to take my son, my only son Isaac, on top of a mountain and to slay him on that mountain. Now, how is that going to be if you promise all the nations are to be blessed between me and my seed? But nevertheless, Lord, if that's what you told me to do, I'm going to do it. And Abraham went up that mountain. And I'm not going to go into details of that this morning. That's not what I'm preaching on. But I do want to let you understand that Abraham considered that to be an act of worship. Worship involves faith. Coming by faith. It comes in almost submission to God's will. And to know what God's will is, you're going to have to read the Bible and study the Bible to know what his will is. And he knew this was God's will for him to do that. I'm sure he didn't understand how it's all going to pan out. How in the world am I going to come back down with my son if I slay him up there? But in Hebrews chapter 11, we find where the writer tells us that Abraham accounted that God was able to even to raise him from the dead if necessary. In the 24th chapter of Genesis, you're going to find Abraham tells his eldest servant to go back to his home country and get a bride for his son Isaac. And you find where that, that servant prayed. When he got to where he was going before, as soon as he got there, he prayed that the Lord would show him exactly who that bride would be. And it came to pass just exactly like he asked the Lord to do it. The Lord fulfilled it. The Lord showed him. And then you come to verses 25 and 26. And it said, the servant bowed and worshiped. And some of the illustrations I want to give you this morning, I want you to notice how important the posture is. He bowed and he worshiped. He said, Blessed be the God of my master Abraham, who not left him destitute of mercy and truth, but I being in the way, the Lord has led me to the house of my master's brethren. I being in the way, I be in the way of prayer, I be in the way of worship, I be in the way of God's providence. I be in the way of God's guiding and directing hand. He said, the Lord has led me. Now, I'm going to look back and I want to be able to say, well, the Lord led me. <laughs> the Lord led me. Where? To the house of my master's brother. Just a beautiful Old Testament expression, I believe, of the old Baptist church. That's where he led him. And after the Lord blessed him to get released, you might say, to go back along with Rebecca, who's going to be Isaac's bride, we find where once again, the old servant of God, servant of Abraham, bowed and he worshiped. He worshiped. I read in the first chapter of Job, where Job was a man unlike any other man. He was a great man. He was a great man for many different reasons, but God had blessed him with many possessions. But in this first chapter, we read where his possessions was taken away. We find when one report came and tell him about his oxen had been slain and, and taken. And uh, then we find where the, the sheep had, were. And, um, you know, and all, all the animals. And when then the last report came, it says, your, your children. He lost his children. Here's a man who was extremely blessed in so many different ways that Satan even told the Lord. He said, the only reason he serves you is because you made a hedge around him and blessed him so abundantly. But God knew Job better than the devil did. He sure did. And when Job got that last report, you know what Job did? He arose, 
He shaved his head. He rent his mantle, which means he tore it in two, and he worshiped God. And he said, Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Naked came out of this world, and naked shall I return. Here's a man who's worshiping God in the time of great sorrow, in the time of great grief. Very first thing he did was do that. He arose, he shaved his head, he ran his mantle, showed us a symbolic of grief and sorrow. And he worshiped God. Come over here to the book of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, rather, chapter 20, chapter 12, rather, verse 20. And we find something that took place in the life of David. Now, David committed a great transgression against God. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. Then he had her husband put on the front line of the battle, knowing in all likelihood he would not survive it, and he did not. God was very displeased with him. When he committed adultery with Bathsheba, he found out she was with child. And then we find where the Lord sent a man by the name of Nathan to address the matter with David. And he told David that he was going to pay fourfold for what he did. When you study the life of David, you'll find where he lost four sons. Because he took something that didn't belong to him. He took another man's wife that didn't belong to him. Then he took the man's life that didn't belong to him. Your life doesn't belong to me. I have no right to take your life. I don't have a right to take my own life. And so the child fell sick. And David prays for that child. And David fasts for that child. And then one day he finds his servants come in his presence. He can tell the way they're acting. Something's not right. So he asks them the question. Is the child dead? They say the child is dead. You know what David did? The Bible says David arose. He washed himself. He anointed himself. He changed his garments. And went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. And then, I just noticed this the other day. And then he went into his own house. He had a house. The Lord had a house. Where did he go first? Went to the Lord's house. The very first, the very place everybody needs to go under any set of circumstances. Be faithful in the house of God. Be faithful to assume yourselves with the people of God. Be faithful to meet with the Lord in the Lord's house. And in times of grief of all places. You know, I've seen people go through similar things and maybe not nowhere near as difficult as this and they just felt like they couldn't, could, just couldn't get to the house of God, the very place they need to be. David arose, washed, anointed, changed his garments and went into the house of the Lord. Then he went into his own house. I'll tell you this, when you go to your house, you'll feel a whole lot better if you go to the house of the Lord first and then go to your house. So Job and David both worshiped the Lord in times of great grief and great sorrow. Abraham worshiped the Lord when he didn't know exactly how things were going to turn out, but he just obeyed the Lord by faith. And then we find uh, Abraham's servant, and he rejoiced the Lord, uh, worshiped the Lord at a time of rejoicing. He prayed, the Lord answered his prayer, and the Lord uh, just did everything he wanted to do. He just fell right down and, and worshiped God. In the book of Joshua, chapter 5, we find where Joshua now has crossed over Jordan and he's next to Jericho. Jericho is going to be the next great challenge. 
They got into the land of Canaan, but right now the land of Canaan is enemy territory. And the first city, the first obstacle, the first challenge they face is taking Jericho. And then Joshua looks up and there's a man standing by with a sword in his hand, and the sword is drawn. And Joshua just approaches him with boldness. So art thou for us or our adversaries? <laughs> the man said, I'm captain of the host of the Lord, which means prince. And then the Bible says Joshua fell at his feet and worshiped. You know why he did that? Because he recognized on that occasion right there, he was standing in the, in the presence of reverence. He was standing in the place of majesty. He was standing in the place of the creator. He was standing in the place of the almighty God. And while he was a captain himself, and had been a captain in battles prior to this, remember the battle, the first battle in Acts chapter 17, when he went into the valley under the direction of Moses to fight the battle, lead the armies in that battle while Moses and Aaron Hur stood on the mountaintop up there and uh, interceded on his behalf. He, was, he knew what military warfare was all about. But when he was in the presence of the Almighty God, he brought him right down to the dust of the earth. And he worshiped. I think of old Jacob so oftentimes, it's recorded for us in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, when Jacob was on his dying days, his dying hours. The Bible says by faith when Jacob was a dying, meaning he didn't have much time left. By faith, Jacob, when he was a dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshiped God leaning upon his staff. Can you picture that? Just picture that for a moment with me, will you? Here's a man who's aged. Here's a man that's 137 years old. Here's a man who's frail and he's weak. He's gone through life's journey. With, with lots of disappointments. He's been through life's journey with lots of difficulties and disappointments and failures, one thing and another. But as he said back in the book of Genesis, when he's before Pharaoh, before Joseph, he said, God has fed me all the days of my life, and he sent his angel to deliver me from all the evil of this world right here. And we see him on his staff, holding him up in his last hours, and he's worshiping God. Paul says we, worship, we are the circumcision which worship God in spirit. Worship is important. Collective worship is important. I believe you can worship God individually. I believe every single day, actually throughout the week, you want to find some, some time in your life to pray to God and humble yourself down and worship Him and adore Him as the great God of heaven and earth. But my friends, on the Lord's day, and recognition of his resurrection, recognition of his victory over sin and death and hell and the grave, and delivering you from the eternal hell itself to a home in God and glory. Oh, the Lord's day, we need to come together and assemble ourselves together and fail not to do it as a manner of some is, we find in Hebrews chapter 10. Meet with the Lord's people in the Lord's house and meet with the Lord in the Lord's house to honor him and praise him. We worship God. We are the circumcision which worship God in spirit. To worship, very simple. I love simplicity. I, I really do. I think there's a beauty in simplicity. And the Lord left us up here real simple in this house called worship. 
And he says, the way you worship. And by the way, let me just ask you this question. Do you think God would leave us alone with something that important? We're going to worship him, and he didn't give us directions to do so? <laughs> do you think God wants us to worship him and did not give us directions and instructions and a blueprint of how to do it? You know he did. <laughs> Under the ceremonial law, when God instructed Moses to build the tabernacle. You think he left it up to Moses to figure all that out? <laughs> he said, Moses, I want you to worship me now. You just decide how you want to do it. Any way, way, way you want to do it, it'd be fine with me, just as long as you worship me. Well, I, I'd, I'd tell the attitude a lot of people is, they just think anything will work. <laughs> anything will work. Just pick and choose. I'm telling you that God has left on record a way to worship him in spirit and in truth. In a real simple manner and simple way, there's a beauty in simplicity. I remember many years ago, I kind of thought Karen was spending too much money on cosmetics. <laughs> and I told her, so you don't need anything. You're beautiful as you are. You don't need makeup and all that kind of stuff. I said, you don't need it. You're just beautiful as you are. I said, uh, in the days of Davy Crockett and Daniel Boone, they didn't have all that stuff. I've seen them on television. <laughs> and Ms. Boone and Ms. Crockett were beautiful, and they didn't have all them cosmetics. <laughs> well, she quickly reminded me that that was TV. <laughs> now, I had to admit, some people could use a little, okay? But, but I'm telling you, there's a beauty in simplicity. What God's given you, what God has blessed you with. Why mess it up? <laughs> and why mess up the household of faith to worship God when God has made it so simple for us? We arrive, we speak, we shake hands, we embrace, our face, faces light up by just seeing one another. And we come and we, we sit down, and you, you know, notice the rest of these, we worship God in spirit. I'm running out of time. We worship God in spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus. That's what I'm doing here this morning. I'm rejoicing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm rejoicing in a manner and way I didn't rejoice before I got here. My mind was on this. My mind was on that. One thing and another. But just as soon as we were able to sit down in here and the first hymn was called out and I heard the voices of God join together in praise and adoration to our Heavenly Father, Brother Mike came up to me. He said, it sounded like we got uh, uh, 4,000 people in here this morning. <laughs> I, I tell you what, I, I started getting a better attitude about myself. I started getting a better outlook about myself. Uh, just those hymns of adoration, those hymns of praise, and, and just giving glory to the Lord took my mind off my problems, took my mind off my sorrows and my difficulties in life. Just took them away for a while. And then when Brother Tim began to pray, I could identify with his words. I could just, uh, uh, you know, feel like, like I was saying to myself, he was representing me in his prayer. It just made me feel better. That's pretty simple, isn't it? And then the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which I've been trying to do for the last few minutes here. And I may be, I may be one of those finalists right here, one of them. One of those finalists, you'll just have to stay tuned in to see which one it is. Started preaching the gospel, talking about the Lord, talking about his person, talking about his work. 
He says, we worship God in spirit and rejoice in Jesus Christ. That's why we're here to rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ, honor him, praise him, glorify his wonderful name. Be reminded one more time of his sinful life, uh, sinless life, excuse me. Be reminded one more time of his perfection, his righteousness, and his holiness. Be reminded one more time of his compassion, his love, when he came all the way down from heaven to lay his life down here for me and for you, to make his soul an offering for sin, and the Almighty God, his Father, was satisfied with the offering of the sacrifice because he saw perfection. I'm telling you, I'm rejoicing in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's not a biblical doctrine in the Bible that Christ is not in the midst of, in the center of everything revolves around him. If you're not rejoicing in Jesus Christ, somebody's proclaiming the wrong message. And we have no confidence in the flesh. <laughs> I'm going to give you just a few examples why I don't have any confidence in the flesh this morning. Go to Genesis chapter 6. I think it's about verse 24. If it's not, you can find it out. And you'll find where the Lord looked and saw that the way of man was corrupt. And man had corrupted the way of God in his flesh. That's what led to the destruction of this earth by a flood. In the 26th chapter of Matthew, the Lord Jesus Christ goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to pray three times in that prayer. But he's going to tell his disciples, he says, now you watch and you pray. I can't ever mention this without thinking about Brother Sonny Piles, his son David. They went to a funeral. It was a real sad occasion. It was just a lot of people there. I mean, hundreds of people there. And the preacher said, now I want everybody to bow your head and close your eyes. And Brother Sonny didn't do it. And David said, Dad, he said, we're supposed to bow our head and close our eyes. He said, well, the Bible says, watch and pray. He says, I'll watch while you pray. <laughs> watch and pray. Why? Because the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. In John chapter 6, the Lord Jesus Christ teaches his apostles, his disciples. And this is the chapter, of course, where he describes himself as the bread of life. He says, the flesh profiteth nothing. It's the spirit that quickeneth. Romans 8 and 8, he says, He that's in the flesh cannot please God. And Paul said in Romans chapter 7, verse 18, he said, For I know in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. No good thing dwells in your flesh. The flesh profiteth nothing. The flesh is weak, and the flesh cannot please God. Therefore, when we come together, it's not to exalt man, it's not to exalt the flesh, it's not to feed the flesh of man, it's not to entertain or be entertained. We meet in the house of God to worship God in spirit and in truth. We worship God in spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus our Savior, and have no confidence in the flesh. That means your human nature. It's not talking about the meat on the bones, it's talking about your life apart from Jesus Christ. Brother, I have no confidence in myself apart from Jesus. And no disrespect, but I don't have any confidence in your nature outside the Lord Jesus Christ. No confidence in the flesh leads to worshiping God in the spirit and rejoicing in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior.